Hey guys, I'm excited today. I have with me my friend Serena Higgins. Um, we actually know each other from grad school at Baylor back in 2017, I believe. Um, Thanks, Serena was, was one of my favorite uh, classmates. Uh, she always had great stuff to say, and we had uh, some similar interests in uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings. Um, she knows more about the uh, the other Inklings than I do, so be excited to hear about that. Um, yeah, you want to introduce yourself a, bit, a little bit more? She's she's very accomplished. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Kendall. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm impressed with the project that you're doing. So we met in a course on American Gothic literature, I think, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool class, and it did have some of our spiritual interests. I ended up writing a paper about mesmerism. It's kind of neat. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I finished the PhD there at Baylor in 2021. I did a dissertation on magic and modern theater, so I'm sure we'll get into discussions of magic and the occult. And since then, I've been teaching, publishing, and right now I run a consultancy of services for writers, where my colleagues and I help authors with everything from brainstorming through drafting, proofreading, developmental editing, distribution and marketing. So that's what I'm doing right now. I also live on a little homestead in upstate New York with a bunch of critters. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, a lot of us that, you know, aren't around New York, when we think of New York, we think of New York City, but, you know, there's actually a lot of countryside in New York. It's actually really, really, really pretty. So that's awesome that it is. you get to experience that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a lot of work, but it's beautiful. Right. Yeah. So today I thought we'd, you know, talk about the occult and magic. Um, you know, I think growing up Christian, I just heard those words and, you know, you think evil and it's scary and all that stuff. But uh, as I've taken my spiritual journey, I've um, learned more and come to hopefully a more nuanced uh, perspective. I, I still, you know, wouldn't say I know a lot, but but know enough to ask some questions. And uh, I know that nice. you're really into Charles Williams, one of the Inklings, and he was also mm-hmm. um, into, into that stuff. He was indeed. Yep. And C.S. Lewis tried it out at one time before he became a Christian and he got mm-hmm. scared off of it by a pretty dramatic <laughs> event in his own life. Oh, really? I, I don't think I don't think I know that part. Yeah. yeah, he he writes in his letters and diaries and in Surprised by Joy that he dabbled in the occult. And I've wondered what that meant. Hmm. But through my own reading and consulting with one of the top-notch C.S. Lewis scholars, I think all he meant is I read books about it and thought about its <laughs> legitimacy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he went to any meetings of secret societies. He certainly right. was never initiated. I don't think he ever practiced ceremonial magic, but he thought mm-hmm. about the nature of the occult, which we'll probably get into when we define our terms. Yeah, but great. then he had an acquaintance who experienced what we would now consider a psychotic break with reality. And mm-hmm. he helped to tend this gentleman while the man was lying on the floor, writhing and screaming out that demons were dragging him down into hell. Wow. And, Lewis associated this man's mental breakdown with that man's occult practices. Mm. He thought the guy had evoked dangerous forces and Mm. was now um, being destroyed by them. So that scared him off of Mm. any association with the occult thereafter. So (laughs) I don't think he really got into the nuances either. Yeah, that would, (laughs) that would scare me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was, I was curious, you know, since Charles Williams was into that and he was part of the Inklings and, you know, they met all the time, uh, how much Charles talked about that and how much Lewis and Tolkien knew about that and how much 
they entertained or thought about or you know, just talked about that stuff? Not at all. Um, oh, Charles okay. Williams <laughs> honored his vows of secrecy for the two orders oh, right. of which he was a member. Now, mm-hmm. of course, the Inklings read his books and they saw that he had things like tarot cards and a kind of a black mm-hmm. mass and these various practices in his novels. Lewis wrote them off as powerful literary techniques and imagery. Tolkien was a little more worried and thought, Charles seems to know a little bit too much about this. <laughs> and was a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much as far as it went. They would have been horrified if they knew the extent of his practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- th- I mean, that's, that's a little funny uh, in the sense that, you know, in Tolkien and Lewis, both of their uh, writings, they talk about magic and have wizards. And, and so it seems like that they, you know, entertain that world to, to some degree, but of course it's you know, fiction. So, <laughs> so yes, it's fiction and they use magic as a powerful system of symbolism to convey spiritual meaning. Right. Cause I think one thing that all the inklings have in common is the idea that the other world and this world can be in communion with each other, that Mm -hmm. there's something beyond the material. So they all Mm -hmm. agreed on that, whether it's Lewis, the Protestant, um, Tolkien, the Roman Catholic, Barfield, the anthroposophist, or Charles Williams, the Rosicrucian. Mm -hmm. Um, They all believe there is a spiritual world. It is real. It impacts this world and we can get in touch with it. Right. But then they differed wildly on how we can get in touch with it. Now, in Mm. addition to that, Lewis and I believe Tolkien also thought that in addition to angels and demons or angels and fallen angels, there were also neutral spiritual beings. They went by various names in the Middle Mm -hmm. Ages, the Longavai, etc. So they thought that there was a significant possibility that all the stories about the little people, the Tuatha Te Danen, the fairies, etc., could have some basis in reality Mm. in these neutral spirits that were neither a benevolent force towards humanity or a malevolent force towards humanity. Mm. So you could see how that can come into their works without them saying you should go and practice magic with an esoteric society. Right. Right. And that makes sense with, with Lewis because I know that George MacDonald was a big um, influence on him and a big reason why he, became a Christian, but, um, you know, George, right. George MacDonald being an Irish, uh, preacher and Scottish. writer, Scottish, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, Careful, you're you going to start a war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mistake. Um, you know, that, that, the whole mythology, uh, in Ireland and Scotland with, with elves and the little people and all that stuff. And George MacDonald included that within his writings. Um, That's right. so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, and neither of them would have been pinned down exactly if you said, you know, do you believe in fairies? They would mm-hmm. have given a long answer that was half scholarly and half spiritual, but that left open the possibility of other influences beyond the purely material. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, just a little side note. It, I'm not sure Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, I know he was also into that stuff too, yes. but I'm not sure... How very much when so. he was alive uh, versus Tolkien a little Lewis, earlier they were connected yep. a little earlier a little earlier he was a Victorian writer that's right he he followed the um, what was the name of it there was that whole episode when these little girls photographed right. fairies yes. and he mm-hmm. completely believed this and mm-hmm. promoted it um, he actually was friends and then enemies with Houdini 
And he and Houdini argued over occult forces all the time, Doyle believing in them and Houdini denying their existence. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Houdini was, uh, remind me. He was that escape artist. Oh, right, right. American, yeah. like American some... stage magician mm-hmm. who would be locked right. up in chests and thrown to the bottom of the sea and then escape. <laughs> right. But okay. for him, it was all skill and practice, not mm-hmm. evoking otherworldly forces. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so let, let's go back a little bit. So what, uh, personally in your own story, what has brought your interest into, into these things? Yes. Good question. Um, I was brought up on the writings of C.S. Lewis. I was one of those kids. My dad read me the Narnia Chronicles, and then I went on to read the rest of the fiction later. And then Tolkien after that. And my favorite undergraduate professor kept saying, if you like Lewis and Tolkien, you have to read Charles Williams. Mm. And I didn't get around to it until after undergrad. And I read The Place of the Lion. I think it was over Christmas break the next year after I graduated from undergrad. And it just blew my mind open. It was It's an astonishing novel. For those who haven't read it, the platonic forms take shape in the world as gigantic animals huge, beautiful, glorious animal figures, and they start absorbing all of their lesser shadows into themselves. So for instance, there is an enormous butterfly, and all the butterflies in the world come to it and are absorbed into it. And this is in some ways gorgeous and ecstatic and beautiful, but it's also dangerous because the whole material world is eventually going to be absorbed in these things, and we Mm. will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. So that's the main premise of that novel. But his writing is vivid and visual, and ideas are the most important realities in his novel. Mm. I've never read anything like it. Now, he's difficult to read. He did not have the same systematic education as some of his Oxbridge contemporaries, and he didn't really learn to discipline his ideas and his syntax down into a way that was readily understandable. But I think it's worth the effort to understand his works. So he wrote seven novels that are just bizarre and beautiful and strange. And then poetry, plays, literary criticism, theology, um, and biographies. So he was a very prolific writer. So I I began reading Charles Williams. I read his Arthurian poetry in 2009 and decided this needs an annotated edition. Well, 15 years later, 14 years later, I'm just barely starting on that project because I had to sort of go and learn everything first Oh wow! Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the man was wildly well read in European, especially British literature, in church history and theology, and also in the occult and other alternative religions. So when I came to Baylor, I was interested in working some on Charles Williams and some on modern drama because his plays have been neglected, but I also began studying the works of William Butler Yeats there under the great professor Richard Rankin-Russell at Baylor, and found out that they were, that Yeats and Williams were members of sort of sister or cousin secret societies and practiced Mm. the same rituals. So I became interested in, well, how many writers from this time period were involved in these secret societies and did their, did their ceremonial magic rituals influence their plays? And mm. the answers were quite a few and yes. <laughs> right. So that's what I, that's what I wrote my dissertation about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What, what exactly. organization was Yeats in? So Yeats was in the Order of the Golden Dawn, and he actually okay. became a leader of that for a while. 
And then there was a spin-off order called the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross that was explicitly a Christian mystical society. And that's the one that Williams joined officially. Hmm. But Williams was also unofficially involved in a sort of a study group that used the Golden Dawn materials. So he was involved in these two different groups. So he had sort of the Christian mystical side and the syncretistic, more magical side as well. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's all very fascinating and interesting. <laughs> it is. It is. That's how I got into it, both personally and then academically. Hmm. Okay. Um, so maybe we should uh, define some terms. How would you Let's define like occult versus an esoteric and magic? Excellent. Excellent questions. So the word occult itself just means hidden. So you can see it in various contexts where that's all it means. Like mm-hmm. when you get a medical test and there's occult something in the blood, for instance, you know, it's something that's not immediately visible. So it just means something that's hidden, a tradition of hidden wisdom. Now for these late 19th, early 20th century practitioners, the occult meant three different things that were all interrelated. First, it meant that tradition of secret knowledge. It was a tradition that they believed could be traced back to ancient times, especially in some groups, ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they believed that there was this whole body of knowledge that only a few people knew and that they passed down first by word of mouth and then eventually written. Um, And so they were, they were the keepers and guardians of that knowledge. But secondly, the occult meant a series of practices by which one learned that hidden wisdom. Because it's not the kind of wisdom, according to them, that you just learn the facts. You know, the two different French words for to know, savoir, and connaître. Savoir is to learn something in a head knowledge sort of way, Mm. to memorize a list of facts. But connaître is to know something by experience oh, or by it. personal connection. It's a little bit like C.S. Lewis's distinction between contem- um, contemplation and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So you right. can sit outside of something and contemplate it, or you mm-hmm. can live into it and enjoy it. And one of Lewis's right. examples is you can be a psychologist who studies the phenomenon of falling in love. Or you can be a biologist who studies what happens to somebody's body chemistry when they fall in love. <laughs> or you can fall in love. <laughs> and those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. So for these, these early 20th century occultists, to know this knowledge was to practice it. Or to practice it was mm-hmm. to know it. Mm-hmm. But then thirdly, the occult, they believed, was an actual powerful natural force. So it was a natural force that scientists had not yet discovered and codified the way they have, say, gravity or magnetism, but they thought science would discover it and catch up someday. And they were actually super excited when atomic physics was in its mm. youth because they thought maybe this was the physical scientific manifestation of this occult force. After all, it used alchemical terminology, the transmutation Mm. of Mm. elements from one to another. Mm. So that's what they thought the occult was. It was a body of hidden knowledge about this powerful natural force and the practices and the path to enlightenment to get to know and to use this knowledge and this force. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, One word I know is like gnosis. Um, Yes. And that's direct, direct knowledge or experience. Um, and, you know, obviously going right. back to the, the, the Gnostics, 
um, a couple other groups. I know uh, the Greeks had mystery schools and That's um, right. and uh, like the, Kabbalah the mysteries. The, mm-hmm. Right, right. And I yep. know Kabbalah says that they were around for a long time. Um, exactly. You know, the, yes. The, the writing wasn't until later, but they said that it was passed down orally. So those are some. Oh, that's, that's really good. Them. Yep. And this, this, these groups, especially the Order of the Golden Dawn, were highly syncretistic. So they took both of those traditions that you just mentioned and incorporated them into their own. One of mm-hmm. the playwrights, Alistair Crowley, the notorious mm-hmm. great beast, called himself Six Six Six, drug fiend, and sexual Rational. predator um <laughs> yeah. yes oh, anyway yeah. <laughs> he um he re, like he rewrote a series of eleusinian mysteries so he believed that he was mm-hmm. reviving that ancient greek tradition and then the golden dawn and especially the fellowship of the rosy cross were highly kabbalistic yes mm-hmm. they incorporated mm-hmm. their own the, let's let's use a different word they appropriated the tradition of kabbalah for their own 20th century quasi-christian version yeah, but they mm-hmm. use the Sephirotic tree. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a diagram of the I've tree of, of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's right. these 10 virtues on the tree. And the idea is that you go up step by step on the path towards mm-hmm. enlightenment and you reach each of those 10 spheres, which really are the spheres of reality, the 10 emanations down from mm-hmm. the primal light. So they used that mm-hmm. system to structure their their order of grades of initiation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And that becomes very important in Charles Williams. You won't thoroughly understand his Arthurian poetry unless you know the the 10 worlds, the 10 Sephiroth from the Kabbalistic tradition. Mm. Okay. So good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For bringing those yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and tell me if I'm correct. Some of these organizations at least would say, you know, when, like when Jesus said, you know, I speak to the people in parables, but I speak to you, the disciples plainly that there was a secret, uh, teaching or higher order that Jesus and that they're um, connected with that. Is that exactly a hundred percent? The man who was Charles Williams direct mentor, Arthur Edward Waite, W A I T E his fellowship, of the Rosie cross was founded on that idea. And Waite wrote dozens of huge books and they were mostly about that. He believed that there was an Ur ritual, that there was a primal Eucharist that Jesus performed at the Last Supper and that it's lost. And so every communion service or Eucharist or Mass is only a poor shadow or copy that's not mm-hmm. quite right. Mm-hmm. But the disciples memorized the 12 apostles or the 11, I suppose. Maybe Judas did too, but then his story ended soon after that. <laughs> um, but then the, the apostles memorized that primal Ur Eucharist and passed it down by word of mouth to Joseph of Arimathea and to various other people in the mysteries. Eventually it gets into the Arthurian tradition to King Peles, who's the keeper of the grail. So you get the grail and the grail mass being passed mm-hmm. down because the idea there is that the grail was the goblet and or the plate used mm-hmm. at the last supper and so along with someone being the, the physical keeper of the grail, they would also be the keeper of the mysteries, of the words mm. that were spoken and the rituals mm-hmm. that were performed there in the upper room, but that have been lost to everyone else. And of course, you come down to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and who is the keeper but A.E. Waite himself, and he's writing the rituals that you know are this, this er mystery that's, all, that's been lost, but he, he's fully enlightened and can pass it on to us. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
what would you say these uh, secret societies incorporated? I know you we talked about or we mentioned Black Mass and alchemy. Um, I know a little bit a little bit about alchemy. I don't. I think I've heard of Black Mass, but I don't remember what that's about. Right. So they incorporated. We already mentioned the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic tradition, the Eleusinian mysteries, and definitely alchemy Egyptian. was a huge Egyptian mysteries. Um, they also used the tarot cards for mm-hmm. divination, and they used astrology and the signs of the zodiac. They also used Enochian magic. Now, this dates from the time of Queen Elizabeth I. Her court magician and alchemist was John Dee. And John Dee found this young man named Edward, I think, Kelly, Edmund Edward Kelly, who could speak to angels, who was a clairvoyant. Is it the mirror? Was it worth the mirror? Is that right? Um, I think you're right. Else? I think they used a mirror. Okay. I think they may have done. I'll have to mm-hmm. check. Um, and so Kelly and Dee took down this language this angelic language that supposedly is the same language the angels had taught to Enoch a long time before, Mm. which is why it's called Mm -hmm. Enochian. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they took down this language and then developed a divination method from it. And the Order of the Golden Dawn used that method as well. They Mm -hmm. used scrying and shared dreaming. Um, What it boils down to is that the, Practices of 20th century modern ceremonial magic were about training the imagination to a high degree of control in order to practice visualization exercises. And the purpose of that was to attain a higher state of consciousness in order to actually create new realities on the astral plane. So they thought that by their very focused meditation and disciplined mental practices, they could transform themselves and transform spiritual reality. And this is mm. especially true for those who were creatives of any kind, that mm-hmm. they they would use their their art, their poetry, their plays, their novels, etc. for for that purpose. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we and, gotta get into the black magic side of it, but go ahead yeah, and yeah. then I can Come back oh, to I it. was just going to say, uh, add a lot more, uh, when you mentioned astral, uh, that connects with, uh, well, I mean, a lot of the stuff connects with the Eastern, uh, religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and they had an understanding of all these different, um, realms or, you know, today we might call them dimensions, um. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a whole other strain in all of this. <laughs> right. um, because at the same time, you have Madame Blavatsky came to mm-hmm. England and brought over a guru from India and she was the founder and head of theosophy, the theosophical Mm -hmm. society, which had an esoteric section. So she brought in the Eastern side of things, which some of Mm -hmm. these orders also combined and Yates began studying the Eastern um, practices and teachings later on in his life. And some other members of these groups went on to incorporate Eastern later on. And one of Charles Williams novels is called many dimensions it's oh, awesome! Different levels of I mean, I need, okay. I've got to read them. I read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, let's see. We got to talk about black magic, and we got to right. define a couple of other terms. Yes, black versus um, white magic. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to give you a much simplified history of the divisions of these of these orders. Mm-hmm. So, in the late 1880s, three Freemasons founded the Order of the Golden Dawn. So, that's another strain that comes into this syncretism is the Masonic tradition as well. Mm-hmm. And so they founded the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was the most influential order at its time and is still 
alive today and has many branches all around the world. It had serious leadership crises in the early 1900s. There's actually a pretty hilarious, from our perspective, event when Aleister Crowley came to England to try to take over the leadership of the Order of the Golden Dawn there. And he was dressed in full Scottish Highland regalia with the kilt and the dagger and a black mask of Osiris, I believe. And he mm-hmm. came to storm the headquarters and Yates was there defending the headquarters with a member who was a former amateur boxer. And the Yates and Crowley apparently engaged in a wizard's battle on the astral plane. <laughs> but on the physical plane, this boxer kicked Crowley down the stairs <laughs> and kicked him out and went to the local judge and got him fined five pounds and changed the locks on the doors. Um, <laughs> but the result of all of these leadership tumults was essentially a three-way split. Like I said, I'm simplifying this. It took, mm-hmm. it took several years and there were other permutations. But it kind of broke up as follows. Yates with white magic... Crowley with black magic and A.E. Waite with Christian mysticism. That, that's kind of an oversimplification, but it helps us to see that there are different strains within mm, the right. larger tradition. Um, and what makes the difference between white and black magic supposedly is two things. First, what your purpose is in the mm. magic. So if your purpose is for self-enlightenment, for healing, for improvement of the world, that's considered white magic. If your purpose is for domination and control of others, then it's black magic. And the second distinction is what kind of spirits you're evoking. If you're Mm. evoking beneficent spirits, supposedly it's white magic. And if you're invoking maleficent evil spirits, supposedly it's black magic. Now, I do not know if any of these people ever participated in what could strictly be called a witch's Sabbath or a black mass, mm-hmm. which is the idea of a reverse communion. Now I get really mm. uncomfortable talking about this because right. this is right. in my mind, very, very evil mm-hmm. stuff. It would be the idea of gathering, you know, usually in a, a place in the forest at midnight mm-hmm. and having uh, some kind of feast of abominable mm-hmm. items mm-hmm. to eat and drink and mm-hmm. like saying the name of God reversed and right. saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. What is that short story, uh, the classic? What yes, is yes, that? yes. Uh, um, Ethan, um, it's Nathaniel Hawthorne. Right. Um, young Goodman Brown. Yes. That's yeah. what it is. Yep. Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. you're right. You're right. <laughs> the young man who goes out to the forest and. Right. Yes. And, read- and all the people in the in the town, we didn't read it in that class, but all all the townspeople are complicit in this, and you can never look at them same. And his kind of right. uh, trust in in society shattered. That's right. <laughs> pretty, and the, the the breaking point was when his beautiful, sweet young wife Faith right. is there, and so he loses his faith. <laughs> yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So he finds one of her pink ribbons on the tree branch. Right. Yep. So, um, what so, what is the difference between white and Christian mysticism then? White magic and Christian mysticism. I believe the difference would be active versus passive, control versus submission. So, I believe in the white magic, one is still actively trying to invoke mm-hmm. spirits, whether they are angels or natural forces or elemental beings or simply one's higher self, mm-hmm. one's inner deity. Whereas in the Christian, 
I believe the idea is more to prepare oneself to passively submit to God's right. will or surrender and to be exactly to surrender, to be sort of overwhelmed by the power of the Holy spirit and the presence of God and perhaps his angels and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think that might be a way to understand the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think about, you know, the difference between a cult and, you know, like religion and specifically Christianity. And the, I kind of came up or thought about that, uh, the, the active versus the surrender aspect. Although yeah. you could make an argument like more charismatic with the gifts of the spirit, that kind of thing is a little more active and, you know, there's always a range, but it does seem that the occult uh, is more of an active versus that kind of surrender that, that makes sense. About. Now there certainly are, extremely rigorous disciplines that Christian mm-hmm. mystics practice. So those are active on the human side of things. But I think the end result or the end goal is, I think, that more passive state where one is simply receptive mm-hmm. to the will of God at any moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And Williams mm-hmm. writes those people beautifully in his novels. Every one of them has a submitted saint, or as I like to say, a Jedi master, <laughs> who is just <laughs> completely at one with the will of God and Everything mm-hmm. that happens, they're just tranquil about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite right. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was thinking. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you no, you first. Oh, I was just thinking about prayer and manifestation. I, I I'm not sure how manifestation exactly if that word even applies to the occult back then, but um, that that kind of being that active versus passive um, side it, of things. They did use that word. What? What does okay. it mean in your usage? And we'll see if it's the same. Oh, I, when, when I hear the word, and I think most people today, they think more like new age. And, and, and so I don't know if that's been appropriated, if, that, if there's much difference, I guess. And so, yeah, just, just the, um, I'm going to create by my, my thoughts and actions, create a different reality or, a, you know, something, something better or bring something into my life. Yes, I think it's the same. Theirs is much more specific. They believed that the highest level adepts practicing the highest level rituals could cause a God form to become visibly manifest. Hmm. So they could essentially okay. force some astral being to take on some kind of material, visible, mm-hmm. maybe even physical body. And mm-hmm. Alistair Crowley claimed to have done that many, many times. He and one of his lovers, Victor Newberg, who was quite an accomplished dancer, one time made a pilgrimage out into the Sahara Desert. And when they reached a very distant point, they partook of some substances to help their state of mind. And Victor Newberg danced an ecstatic trance dance for a long time and apparently was, oh, while Crowley was performing rituals and incantations and invocations, and apparently Newberg was possessed by one particular spirit and sort of helped it to manifest in the earth by his trance performance. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So to finish the black magic side of right. it, so Crowley mm-hmm. did practice what to me are um, extremely disturbing, abominable black masses where he did a communion that involved sexual practices that are, um, Pretty sickening. I won't go into the details here, right. but he, he performed mm-hmm. an abominable grail mass. Um, so we sort of have the range of practices there from 
AE Wait, where someone might be meditating on the image of the cross and using the Lord's Prayer, through Yates, where someone would be meditating on the pentagram and evoking perhaps Egyptian or Greek deities, mm-hmm. all the way through Crowley's mm-hmm. um, definitely mm-hmm. straight up. He's like, I want mm-hmm. to call up the devil kind of practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, unrelated, but related. <laughs> Yesterday, I looked up the pentagram because um, there was a meme my brother sent me and this person was trying to get a tattoo and they actually got a, a tattoo of the Star of David instead of the pentagram. <laughs> this is, is kind of funny. Um, but but I looked up pentagram and um, even even the history of that is is you know a lot more deeper than modern day Satanists using that as an evil symbol, but it was used by many different traditions for, for many different symbols and reasons that wasn't all dark. Exactly. That's right. Charles Williams practiced the banishing pentagram ritual all his life and taught it to his disciples. And the the banishing pentagram is supposed to be the good one where you use it to keep away any evil influences. And then the reversed or invoking pentagram is supposed to be the quote unquote bad one. Right. Mm -hmm. Calling dangerous forces in order to control them and use them to harm someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about you know the the parallels again, uh, or differences between the cult and and Christianity, and thinking about things like rituals, like communion, singing, chanting, and um, you know the, the the charismatic movement, the prophecy and tongues and healing and um, you know divination. And all, uh, there's a lot of uh, parallels and similarities there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so we maybe could parse some of the differences. Sure. In order to do that, do you mind if I define a few more terms? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, because we haven't yet defined esoteric or even mm-hmm. magic. All right. itself. Right. And I think if we do that, then we can probably come back to your excellent question about, sure. Sure. or your, your thought. I mean, these things mm-hmm. look the same. Are they different? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, is it all religions are the same and we all just practice rituals of invocation? So the esoteric is a, a large system of thought. It's a large category. It's grounded in Neoplatonic ideas. Mm. It draws mm-hmm. on Hermeticism, which is the doctrine of correspondence, as above, so below, right? That yeah. everything here is a microcosm mm-hmm. for everything above. And there certainly is a very rich Christian Neoplatonic tradition in European thought and writing. But the esoteric emphasizes correspondences, the anima mundi, or the spirit of the world, and the imagination as a way to truth. And it also claims a secret, hidden, higher knowledge. So there are esoteric strains of Christianity that might not be occult, if that makes sense. That they mm-hmm. also claim a higher secret wisdom, but they're drawing from a Neoplatonic tradition rather than from an Enochian, Eleusinian, um, Egyptian, or Kabbalistic tradition, mm-hmm. right? And then there are Christian traditions that abhor the esoteric and say the point of Christianity is that it's exoteric, is that it's public, <laughs> is mm-hmm. that everything that you need to know for life and faith and salvation is in the Bible and in the public preaching and in the, the um, church tradition, and you don't need a higher secret initiation. So that might be mm-hmm. one difference is the esoteric versus the exoteric, right? if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so what is magic and is Christian ritual magic and are Christian miracles <laughs> magic? So yeah, according to Alistair yeah, Crowley, <laughs> so mm-hmm. Alistair Crowley, who was an awful guy, but was 
a good writer at sometimes, he wrote the famous definition, magic is the art of causing change to occur in accordance with the will. And I would add realized via the imagination. Now, this is a, a limited definition to these 20th century, mostly European practitioners. There are other definitions, other times and places and cultures. But magic is the art of causing change to occur in accordance with the will realized via the imagination. And at the end of the paragraph in which he gives that definition, Crowley says, now look, I have just put words in order in a certain way, according to my will, and I've caused a change to occur in you, dear reader, because you've read these words. So this paragraph was an act of magic. Gotcha. <laughs> and that makes it think like, well, then is in almost everything. Right. Magic. right. And he would say yes. He would kind of say almost mm-hmm. any intentional human action is tapping into these powerful forces to cause change to occur. Um, But what most of them meant at this time was the transmutation of the inner self, the alchemical change of the soul or the psyche from the base metal, from lead, from something impure to the pure gold. Mm -hmm. And they strove for an alteration of consciousness and their ultimate goal. And this is where I think we probably need to go in the conversation now, their ultimate goal was to get in touch with your own inner divine self to use Mm, a a Frank Peretti line. um, We're all God. We just forgot that we're God. Um, Frank Peretti said that he said that on a really like a lecture or a talk that I heard when I was a little kid. I've read most, if not all his fiction. And I don't know if he was quoting somebody else. Right. uh, Okay. But it's a handy line. Right. But yeah, that's, that's, that's a huge difference in what most Christianity thinks. I agree with you. Or no? Okay. agree. However, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have had many a debate with Christians from other traditions, especially Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, Eastern traditions, Orthodox. Right, right. That would be um, And even mm-hmm. some of the more mystical, because there's the doctrine of theosis, the idea yes. of mm-hmm. the human what would be the right word? Mm-hmm. It would be transmutation or would it be, well, let's use the Athanasian creed, right? Um, what is the line in the Athanasian creed? God, um, not by, not by the bringing of himself down into manhood, but by the taking up of manhood into himself. I'm missing the first part of the, of the line. Um, but there oh, is a, a tradition <laughs> of deification right. within Christianity that I am not very familiar with. So I'm starting to question my own academic ability to parse between what things, for instance, Charles Williams says are strictly Orthodox, smaller case O, and which Mm -hmm. things are not. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's what it would boil down to. I think Williams leans too heavily into the imminence of God to the detriment of the transcendence. And I think that he obscures the creatorly creaturely distinction. I think he leans too heavily mm. into the humans have a divine self. Ah, gotcha. Uh-huh. Okay. But other Christians I, I'm probably him. I'm probably more on uh his side. Um okay. but but I know most Christians are more on the other side. So yeah, it's interesting. I'm not totally sure because there are some <laughs> right. huge branches of Christianity that do lean uh-huh. heavily into the the Imago Dei as being, I'm not sure what words to use, part part of God within yourself or a divine spark within right, yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that kind of goes, 
back to manifestation a little bit um, and a little more nuance to that in that saying that like, like, like new age, for example, that in create and I'm creating new reality. They believe that we are, we are a part of God. We, we have God inside of us. And so that's our true self. And so right. in I'm creating new reality, I is God in a sense. And so it's, it's, it's like, as you go inward, and find who your true self is and live through that, then there's not, there's not this difference between God and us. Um, but obviously it's really easy to spiritual bypass the ego and all of the, the sin and whatever. Um, so, so a lot, there's a lot of problems obviously, but, um, but yeah, but, but, but kind of this, uh, like the hermeticism inner outer above below, um, there's a connection there. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think you've just expressed it really well. I think you've expressed what these orders would say really well. I'm not comfortable with that. Sure. To me, that that um, exalts humanity and runs the risk of dragging God down, which is the opposite mm-hmm. of what the Athanasian Creed mm-hmm. wants to say. And the Athanasian Creed is written in the future. Is it? It's that, no, it isn't. It's that God is took manhood up into himself. But mm. for me as the individual human, I think that it would be death to my soul if I focused on the, I have God within me. I mm-hmm. am God within me. You know, have, mm-hmm. if, if it's, I have Christ in my heart, you know, that's the way it was explained to me as a little evangelical kid. Right. It was like, you ask Jesus uh-huh. into your heart. <laughs> I think that is different than saying, even I have God within me. And certainly it's different than saying I am God, at right? The core yeah, of that I think is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I think it is. I, w- I would agree that it is dangerous. I think it takes very careful explanation and what does that actually mean? It's easily corrupted. So yes. uh, maybe that's not the best language. Um, I, I think I, I, I guess I connect it with, I would say, original goodness of original sin and kind of. Uh, help try to help away from the shame and the disconnect from the body and, and seeing that as evil. Um, Mm -hmm. and that it seems like a lot of spiritual tradition is, is about that surrender. And as we surrender and, um, psychology, the language of psychology, working through our traumas and all the stuff that underneath all of that is, is God. And so, um, I, yeah, I don't know. It seems to me that we're all saying the same thing, maybe, but just using different language, <laughs> perhaps. I know what you mean. Um, that worries me. Even mm-hmm. even saying that we're all saying the same thing, even that worries me. Because, uh-huh. okay, well, so so to put my cards on the table, haha, because we're going to sure. talk about tarot cards in a few minutes, probably. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm a reformed Christian. Mm-hmm. And I'm fairly extreme in my prioritization of God's ordination of all things over free will. I'm not mm-hmm. sure there is such a thing as free will, honestly, when it comes mm-hmm. down to it. Mm-hmm. And I do lean really heavily on the total depravity side of things. And so in my own spiritual journey, the times when I've been focusing on oh, there's goodness within myself are the ones when I've been least spiritually healthy Mm, and the times when I've been able to 
contrast my fallenness with his grace are the times that mm. I've been most spiritually healthy. Because I want to say it is absolutely 100% all about him and not about me. So mm. That's what worries right. me about these traditions is when they're about mm. me, mm. either in their right. theory or in mm-hmm. their practice. And some of these teachers went much further, like A.E. Waite went so far as to say, I'm not even sure if there was an historical Christ, but it doesn't really matter because we all have the Christ spirit within us and we just have to realize the Christ spirit within us. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not Christianity. That's over mm-hmm. the line. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. that's not creedal, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know whether Charles Williams, as a professing communing Anglican, went that far. He mm-hmm. did believe in the mm-hmm. historical Jesus. Um, I believe he was a creedal Christian, but I worry about how heavily he leaned on mm-hmm. the Christ spirit within aspect. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're obviously, you know, giving your 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 view and and pushing back because um, most of my podcasts it has been, you know, people that that generally I we agree with and what we're talking about. So it's good. I've been wanting to have, you know, a, a good conversation that, you know, can be productive and not just antagonistic, uh, some differences. Good. So, so I appreciate, appreciate you. Oh, thank um, you. yeah. Uh, and, and so I guess the, the, the last little thing I'll say on this is, is, um, I, I guess, you know, I'm, uh, I've read and I've, you know, combed the edges of, of the, the occult and these secret societies and what they're all about. But I'm, I'm more into the, the mystics, um, that, yes. uh, like St. John of the cross or Teresa of Avila, um, mm-hmm. that they were all about going back to that direct experience of God. And that in somehow, in some way there is this connection, this oneness that we can, um, yeah, I don't know if you'd say obtain or surrender to <laughs> to God. Right. Um and and so there is this sort of melding. Um, but it's difficult to put into words what that means and how that looks yes. like and you know, the psyche is so complex and, and so unique to each one of us and 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 in and then our language we associate different things with, with the same words. And so what I when I say something, it might mean something totally different to someone. So their path to the same inner experiences as, as me might be different. And so it, yeah, it's just right. it's fascinating. Right. It's interesting. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, I just started reading Evelyn Underhill's Everyday Mysticism, oh, yeah. a practical mm-hmm. guide for normal people, I think. Now she was in one of these orders and Charles Williams mm-hmm. wrote the introduction to the volume of her letters when that was published. And she defines mysticism as, union with reality Hmm. but she acknowledges we could talk endlessly about exactly what do we mean by union what exactly do we mean by reality (laughs) reality and i would argue that the definitions of those terms matter and i Mm. myself would say it is christian mysticism if capital r reality equals the Trinitarian God, Hmm. but not if it's anything else, if it's some kind of force, if it's some kind of spirit within us, if it's some kind of polytheistic, et cetera. And Hmm. then the union 
Right. I would say that would be Christian mysticism if that union is a surrender that acknowledges our sinfulness and his mercy, grace, and transcendence. But I would say it would be some other kind of mysticism if it just acknowledges like we always were God and we just have to remember that and reconnect with Mm -hmm. that consciousness, Mm -hmm. whether it's a pantheist or a panentheist Mm -hmm. or a humanist type of mysticism Mm -hmm. that those are Mm -hmm. those are some some distinctions i might make (laughs) yeah yeah that's great yeah i i I lean towards uh panentheism but uh yeah that's that's good stuff yeah i wonder if williams did too can can you remind me of the oh sure uh panentheism is god is above all things but he's also within all things right okay would that be like the way Lewis describes things in the great dance that every exact, every object, and every the great person, every being the, the great dance at the end of okay. Paralandra. Um, oh, okay. Where everything is like so equally important and everything is sort of exchanging roles. In a great um, I think it's more just like the spirit of God. Um, you could say the Holy spirit is, is within all things. And so God, you say, God is above all things, and you could say the God the Father, but he's also within all things. You could say, like, the Holy Spirit. Um, okay. Yeah. Is that yeah. why we then have such a thing as general revelation? Why anybody can know something about God from nature, creation? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, well, uh, well I don't want to say, speak for all Panentheists, but I don't know if we uh, see a distinction between general revelation and what was the other one? Divine revelation. Special, special revelation. Right. Special. Yeah. Now I, I think there's different levels of course. And I think there's def- different levels of inspiration and different, different things. And, but uh, I wouldn't make a hard distinction between the two. Would you think that general revelation is enough to be salvific? <laughs> well, that gets into what is salvation. <laughs> That's oh, okay. Well, what is salvation case. then, Kendall? <laughs> Interview the interview. Do we want to go down this road, or I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Get... Totally, totally up to you. We can maybe, maybe another maybe another that. podcast episode. We can get more into these things. Awesome. Maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> I, I, I love all these things, but I want to try to stay, <laughs> on stay on topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess to kind of wrap it around to where we started, then because of these distinctions that I make, therefore my knowledge of the occult is entirely savoir and not a tiny bit of connaître. It's entirely contemplation and not a little bit of enjoyment. I don't touch the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have A.E. Waite's famous set of tarot cards here, um, and I don't really handle them, uh, only if I need to for a lecture or for studying mm-hmm. for academic purposes. Mm-hmm. I'm very careful that even when I'm reading rituals, when I need to for writing, I don't sub-vocalize them in my head. You know, I don't... I don't mm speak them in my head. And I certainly don't Mm -hmm. read the complete thing out loud in a lecture or something like that. It's bewilders me that after years of studying this stuff, I still don't know what I actually believe about it. I don't Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. what would be demonic activity, what would be just psychological forces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that it's efficacious enough that one ought to be cautious. Mm. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that the occult and these rituals and these practices, they have actual power or. Here's the one power that I know they have. This is probably as far as I can go, which is 
if I practice something over and over and over every day for years, it does rewire my neural pathways. Mm-hmm. It does create new sure. cognitive connections. So if the goal of modern magic was to change one's consciousness, then yes, it worked. <laughs> Just like if I pray every day or if I practice yoga every day, right, <laughs> it right. creates new neural pathways. So mm-hmm. I know that it mm-hmm. is psychologically efficacious. That is all I can say with certainty. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, <laughs> that That's uh, I, I've been, I kind of, after my awakening, I, 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 well, I struggle with a lot of things, but uh, I guess something more recent that I've been thinking about again is, is prayer and that uh, does it. Uh, I think Kierkegaard says that prayer, prayer doesn't change God, it changes man. And so that, that kind of belief that it doesn't, we, we can't change God. We can't do anything to, but it, but it changes us, which then, then we, then the, when we change, then it changes reality. And so, um, right. that's, that's why, why even pray? Like if I just, can I just, you know, and so I think there is some sort of, uh, um, uh, this connection. I think like Jesus talked about, I couldn't do any miracles in my hometown cause they didn't have faith. And so I think there is this partnership that we have to, you know, at the very least, um, we have to surrender and believe that these things are possible for then God to work. If not, we have to do something active. Um, but at, at the very least we have to believe and surrender for, for it to have power. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I would just go one step further back and say that it's God doing that from the first place that like, he is the one that is, causing us to believe, causing us to surrender, mm-hmm. etc. Um, the verbs don't really even work in English. It's almost like he is <laughs> believing me, not believing in me. But he is the one doing <laughs> right. the believing uh-huh. in me, enabling me to do so. But I, I wrestle with these things. I, uh, mm-hmm. I have a short story that I first wrote yeah. over 10 years ago in which the main character struggles with this. She, she has, she has faith and she has doubt and they torment her. She doesn't know which one is real, right? Mm-hmm. And it sort of depends on her mental state, whether she is mm-hmm. in faith or in doubt. Um, it really torments her. And then she learns about the supposed God gene, the idea that mm. we have a certain right. bundle of <laughs> points in our DNA that if we have these, we are more likely to have religious faith. And my story is set in a near future science fiction kind of environment when it's possible to get your personal genome completely mapped in this fictional world that they, they basically print out your DNA and tell you exactly what every GTC and A causes. Like this point mm-hmm. is your eye color. This point is your hair color. Right. This point is why you believe in God. Like a neuroscientist <laughs> dream. <laughs> exactly. Or nightmare. <laughs> You're right. And, when she learns this in the story, it's devastating because she says this proves that there is no God and I don't have faith. It's just biology. It's just mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. I have chemistry. this gene chemistry that I therefore have uh-huh. faith. Mm-hmm. And her roommate after a while basically says to her, why does it prove that? Like if there were a God wouldn't he couldn't he design 
know, couldn't he have given you this gene as a gift? Like, wouldn't that be how he gives you faith? Essentially, it's it's <laughs> uh, not as didactic uh-huh. in the story. It's more integrated mm-hmm. into their into their lives. Um, and that the the poor girl, like she keeps saying, but it could go one step back, and it could go one step back, and it could go one step back. Like, where does it stop? Is it turtles all the way down? And are the turtles doubt or faith, or are they alternating? And does it uh-huh. depend which one is on the bottom? Uh-huh. So. I think it's an excellent question and mm-hmm. it connects to your bringing up the mystics too, because a lot of the mystics experience these, these uh, times of spiritual ecstasy that we would now diagnose and medicate away. Right. Right. We wouldn't have mm-hmm. Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, because mm-hmm. we put them on lithium and SSRIs right. and uh-huh. antipsychotic meds mm-hmm. um, or in the case of Hildegard von Bingen on anti-migraine meds. <laughs> um, so was Hildegard of Bingen seeing a heavenly aura or was she having a migraine? And my answer is, well, why not both? I mean, mm-hmm. doesn't God mm-hmm. use our biology, our chemistry, our physical makeup and I know you've struggled with this question, right? Too, yeah, I mean, I've life. talked a lot about this, and um, that that yeah. really reminds me of my uh, conversation with Jan Holden about uh, psychosis or spiritual emergency, um, which mm-hmm. transpersonal psychology mm-hmm. is defined and looked into the stuff, and 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 what they believe is basically that yeah, there could be both that you know there is a, a psychological component, and it doesn't mean that there's um, there there there's unhealth, but then there's also spiritual significance and um mm. that that is that is something um something real and that there's significance to and that mm. is important we take that into consideration and help these people um figure out what that means and how to how to live from there does that worry you if we tend now to medicate away any kind of ecstasy or oh yeah for sure for sure yeah, and, and again, I'm not anti-medication. I think you, if you need it, that that go for it. Um, and and maybe maybe I did need it. Um, you know, I, I entertain thoughts that you know, at the very least, there's alternate routes that that could have been taken to see if that would have worked for me, uh, grounding techniques and stuff like that. Um, but um, but yeah, the, the these things are important. And um, I mean, Young says that we have so much mental health problems because we're disconnected from the spiritual. And because um, I think it's another quote that the, the mystic swims in, in the, the, the ocean that this, um, yes. that, uh, Oh, I'm going blank. Is it the ocean of the spirit or is it the ocean of, well, he just says that, that, um, schizo- that the schizophrenic drowns in. So basically because we haven't um, confronted and, um, explored the the spiritual and what and the psyche that when it does rear its head on us from the unconscious then we just drown it and so we need to actually and so uh Anya young was someone who you know i don't know i don't know if he how much he practiced but he at least looked into the occult and he was very interested in in, in that stuff and so absolutely i mean he was i would know. say he was fairly deep into the esoteric hermetic side of things for sure um, I don't know how far into the occult, strictly speaking. That's a really good mm-hmm. distinction, though, Kendall, between health and harm, right? On the one hand, we don't want to medicate away ecstasy and visions, etc. But mm-hmm. if they are harmful to ourselves right. and others, 
mm-hmm. obviously God can and will still speak to us in many, many other mm-hmm. ways that are not right. going to cause us to hurt ourselves or others. Right. Yeah. 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 I you think know, it's we, all we about. We have had Joan of Arc if she, if she were on some of those meds, maybe not. Yeah. But look at how that turned right. out for her. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's, I think there's also conversation about like the, you know, madness and brilliance and, um, yeah. ecstasy mm-hmm. and mania and all, all this stuff that there's, it's not so black and white. <laughs> um, bri- yeah. Uh, genius and madness, you know, there's, um, yeah. and, and really you know, thinking about the, the spiritual and uh, th- that stuff is not our normal everyday experience. And so when we do, experience these things into in a profound experience it's going to be ungrounding it's going to be uh, hard to digest and make sense of and it's 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 gonna make you a little crazy and so uh mm-hmm. i think it's important that we explore these things so we can make sense of them so we can help people not just mm-hmm. go crazy and and not make sense of it and not and i think we're i think we're getting there i think that you know you were talking earlier about like uh subatomic uh, physics. I think that quantum physics is uh, kind of connecting, making that bridge between science and spirituality. And, um, you know, I would say like aliens and dimensions, string theory. Um, you know, we, we don't, we don't know. We have these theories, but uh, I, I think they're, I think we're getting there. <laughs> we'll see. I have hope. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, I agree. And, on the genius and madness thing and on the ecstasy and health, just to be clear, I am on the please take your medication side of things. And on the, it's not for sure. Worth, for sure. Yeah. I don't think it's worth even the great work of art for someone to have to suffer that madness. Mm. I think mm-hmm. if they have mental health, they will still produce great works of art yes. without as much yes. damage to themselves and right, their families right. and their communities. I'm yeah, not worried uh, that, that we're going to heal away genius yes yeah for sure for sure i think that um you know i've read about people who have bipolar mania and they worry uh they 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 just want these experiences and they want uh they worry about their creativity and you know i mean i'll be honest yeah you have these amazing experiences and and you're it is kind of like a drug you crave that and so you want these experiences and so i definitely think that i've learned in my journey you know it's not about the experience i think that um, Buddhism is really good about talking about, you know, during meditation, you might have all these crazy experiences, but it's not about that experience. It's about, um, connecting with God and, and, um, also this, um, uh, not being attached to these things. Um, you can Mm -hmm. observe them, but don't get attached to it. And so, yeah, don't, don't get attached to the experience and, and don't get lost in, in pursuing that. And so it's just, um, and then that's what the mystics are all about. It's like everything, everything is, is an experience of God. Everything is spiritual, as Rob right. Bell says. So don't get lost in pursuing these, these ecstatic or amazing experiences, but everything is, is important in life and it all can teach us. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah, isn't it more about the transformation of the everyday life? Isn't that kind of the test yeah. of whether right. a spiritual yeah, it's experience like you, was genuine? Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's, you, you, it's not. It doesn't help if you can't integrate that experience into your everyday life. And you know, some people will have these experiences and be like, "Oh, I'm enlightened." But until you integrate that, then people can just see that they're not grounded and they're not 
connected to the now moment and they're not uh integrating these experiences and so they're not uh they're not connecting with everyone else and so they're really kind of lost in a way exactly and that can easily become very selfish and exploitative that the person can say you know i need to get these ecstatic experiences at the cost of anything else than anyone else. And mm-hmm. a huge part of these early 20th century occult orders that we haven't talked about is the abuse that was prevalent mm-hmm. in them. There was a mm-hmm. great amount of spiritual abuse, physical, financial, and sexual abuse in these orders because the leaders, usually men, but sometimes it was the woman who was the abusive leader, they would be given all this spiritual power over these other people who quote unquote weren't enlightened yet, these neophytes Mm -hmm. and people flocked to these orders a lot of times because they felt marginalized and disempowered. They were Mm. women who couldn't be spiritual leaders in the traditional church. They Mm -hmm. were people without college degrees who couldn't be influential leaders in the academic world. And they were usually people of lower economic means. And in these orders, they were given power, respect, Mm. authority, and a kind of alternative education. It was almost like getting a PhD because it took usually about seven years to climb up each of these orders and learn all the material. And every time you finished one, you would take a written exam and a practical exam, just like your owls at Hogwarts. Um, And so these people could feel like they had gotten what they'd been denied. You know, women still couldn't get degrees at Oxford until 1920. So a lot of times... You'd have people who had power and authority in these orders over people who were less powerful. And what happens when you put that situation? People abuse it. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of instances of, like I said, spiritual, physical, financial, and sexual abuse. And Charles Williams mm-hmm. was among the worst. He was a, a terrible abuser of his disciples and his followers, mm. which is a very mm, discouraging thing to learn. Yeah, along mm-hmm. with his right. uh, you know, Christian teachings. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, of course, uh, anything secret, you know, secret society, the more secret it is, the more, uh, room for abuse. But of course we can see within Christianity itself that, you know, that that's not so secret that there's been tons of abuse and issues as well. So. And I think (laughs) it's it's giving power to people, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We're not really capable of wielding power without wielding it wrongly. Mm hmm. For sure. Yeah. And one uh, note I made is um, it's, it's interesting when you think about like witch and wizard wizard, you're like, Oh yeah, that's good. That's, that's interesting. But witch, you're like, Oh, that's, that's evil. So you can just see the, the patriarchy there. <laughs> the gender dynamics there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, good yeah. observation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. That's generally how my podcasts go. Um, that's great. Yeah, definitely in the editing, uh, um, I'll, I'm sure I'll come up with more stuff. Um, there's a lot more we could get into in, in detail and kind of, yeah, the ideas behind these things. Uh, there, there's so much there, so much richness, but uh, yeah, was I, I appreciate uh, what to... we have covered. Yeah, um, well, I had a couple of things, um, okay. the, the, and not too, too in-depth, but um, I, I just thought it was interesting. I think you know, it may be disputed, but I know a lot of the founders of U- of U.S. Were, were Masons, and a lot of our uh, our uh, structure, architecture, and symbols, all that stuff, uh, connected with the with with these groups. Um, so I, I just find that interesting because um, yes. a lot of Christians are like, "We're a Christian nation," and it's like, 
we're more of a deistic or deistic nation than Christian. I think that's a little more accurate. That's a good observation. I haven't studied the American side of it very much yet, but so I don't know, is it like the Illuminati control the U S government? <laughs> um, I, I don't, I wouldn't go that far. However, right. I have just started work on an article about white Christian nationalism and the occult. Mm. And that was inspired mm-hmm. by a brilliant study looking at the occult forces that were operative in the 2016 election. Um, Mm. There was a coven of witches that came together to curse Donald Trump when he was elected. Mm. And they met every new moon um, of his entire presidency to perform this curse against him. And they they met worldwide um, across time zones. And then there was another group of another coven of witches that decided they wanted to support him. And so they wrote an anti like a counter curse or a spell of blessing for him. And they performed it at the same time. So it was this magical war going on for and against Donald Trump for the whole four years of his presidency. And then there was an online fake religion that grew out of 4chan and 8chan and some like, not exactly. Um, It has some overlap in its origins, but it's called the cult Mm -hmm. of Keck. Um, Okay. And it was a joke at first, and then someone took it seriously. So there's this occult group. They use sort of Kabbalistic approaches to algorithms, to like numerical symbolism mm-hmm. in algorithms. Um, and they were participants in the January 6th. Like their flag mm. was there mm-hmm. at the Capitol right next to the Christian flag and the Jesus 2020 signs um, mm. outside the U.S. Capitol. So I would like to know more about the overlaps between certain kinds of quote-unquote Christianity in America and these occult and esoteric traditions. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So one reason too, why I'm interested in all this stuff is, is because in my own awakening and experience that I had, like I was thinking a lot about numerology and, and and all I knew about that stuff was the Enneagram. (laughs) So, so that's the reference I had. So that was what I was thinking about, (laughs) but um, that among energy all this different stuff um when i started my spiritual journey realizing that other people had uh experienced these things and 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 studied them and you know these cold groups and all this stuff so i was like i didn't come at this from an intellectual side i came at this from my own experience and so it just made me think that maybe like these things were first experienced by people and then they made you know, sense of it and me writing. And so, and so that there's some truth to it, that it's an experience people had and that they, they are connecting to the spiritual realms and that, yeah, that there's, there's something to it basically. Yeah. That's well said, kind of like music theory, right? Like the practice came first and the theorizing of it came later, the systematizing and Mm -hmm. writing it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are a lot of similarities across cultures that didn't even have contact with each other that have similar, systems of symbolism, some similar numerical symbology. And to, to go back to Carl Jung again, the idea that there are these archetypes that are universal across humanity, regardless mm, right. of culture yeah. and time period. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I read uh, Joseph Campbell, who's another guy who talks about the, the universal the symbology. Yep. Yeah. I read that in college before I ever had an experience and, and I didn't know anything about all that kind of stuff. And it just really connects with me. I was like, Oh, that's what that's what fiction does is it connects with us with the universal human experience emotions symbols all these things and 
that's one reason why it's so powerful is that it finds these connections and something that we can all connect with each other with this oneness. It sort of tells the one story over and over and over again. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, so, uh, I guess there's, there's a part in the Bible in the Old Testament where, um, uh, not keep David, of, but uh, the witch of Endor. Yeah, the witch. Yeah, right, right. And it says, "Hey, don't don't do this." Do you have any uh, theological perspective on on that? And and, and d- is that saying that we should stay away from that those sayings, or was it that context? Or and there's two different passages that I have in mind. There are the ones that that you're mm-hmm. quoting that say, um, "You shall tolerate no witch in your land, and anyone practicing witchcraft shall be put to death." There's also the passage where Saul goes to consult a witch yes, and says right. to her, hey, I want to talk to the the ghost of Samuel, Samuel who's dead. Yeah. And she's like, mm-hmm. okay. And she calls up Samuel. <laughs> and when Samuel call, is called up, the witch turns to Saul and says, you lied to me. You didn't tell me you were King Saul. This suggests to me several different things. One, it seems like there was some kind of truth going on there because it seems that it revealed to the witch mm-hmm. who Saul really was Two, the scripture mm-hmm. passage never says it wasn't Samuel. So mm-hmm. right. did it work? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but three things didn't turn out so well for Saul in the end. Right. So did that actually mm-hmm. help him Four, is that actually an historical narrative mm-hmm. or right, is it right. more of a, a parable or a myth, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the overall narrative of the scriptures as well as specific verses and instances seems to say not to engage in these sorts of practices because Mm -hmm. they are Mm -hmm. trying to appropriate the divine power to ourselves that they're trying Mm -hmm. to grasp for ourselves things that Mm -hmm. belong to god only whether that's knowing the future knowing the time and manner of our Mm -hmm. death knowing Mm -hmm. um knowing sort of the, the back of the tapestry, like the way everything fits together mm-hmm. behind the scenes, but instead mm-hmm. to take either the mystical route that we've talked about or the ordinary Christian root uh, route <laughs> of the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. we have to necessarily go around experimenting with what are these other spiritual practices when it's hard enough to just do what we're told to do, read the Bible, pray, go to church, right. you know, fellowship with other uh-huh. Christians, take the sacraments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's probably enough for most of, most of us to just submit to the exoteric mm-hmm. commands and practices mm-hmm. and not, not dabble too far in the mysterious and the esoteric. Right. Right. Yeah. I so I, I wonder though, because I think like um, you know, the Bible talks about the the precious gems in the Old Testament and which be crystals and the wise men. Some people say they were astrologers. They were, yep. Um, they were. So, uh, and then the ephod, uh, the high priests wore. And yeah, with the Urim the, and Thummim that were doing divination. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I just wonder if uh, there's you know a lot of hidden hidden stuff in there that we just kind of pass over. Don't think about um, that. It's not so clear cut basically, yeah. but uh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's the, interesting. I think the stuff. Lord can use, I think the Lord can use these things, right? Um, I mean, he can, mm-hmm. he can baptize or use anything, um, many things, but 
I myself don't recommend the practice of them. Yeah. 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 I definitely think that, um, all this, you know, any spiritual practice, I mean, everything really just be careful and, um, you know, yeah, the, the explore, you know, um, if, if, if you feel that it's could be helpful, but be careful, be cautious as well. Yeah, exactly. Be wise and discerning. There was a, there was a little incident at Baylor. I think it was maybe my last year there. So maybe you weren't there any longer. There was a little article in the Lariat, the student newspaper about the tarot Mm -hmm. cards. It was just written by some Mm -hmm. undergrad and she Mm -hmm. was saying, you know, go ahead and practice tarot. It's fine as a Christian. Um, she said, it's not like there's any demonic power behind it or anything. It's just, you know, a handy way of basically tapping into the archetypes. And Mm -hmm. I wish I had taken the time to write back because the developers and the most notable practitioners of tarot cards did believe that there were spiritual powers behind them. Mm. Some believed that they were demons. Some believed that Mm -hmm. they were benevolent powers, but some of them thought that there was Mm -hmm. a specific spirit connected with each card. Mm. So I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that, you know, some undergrad who hasn't studied this deeply (laughs) is the best authority to say, don't worry, Mm -hmm. there's nothing to Mm -hmm. this. Um, Mm -hmm. There may be something to it. Mm-hmm. If someone like A.E. Waite, who spent his entire life studying this, thought that there was, we we might just want to take that into consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. <laughs> well, um, that that comes to everything I, I had uh, written okay. down. Is there anything that you would like to add or finish with? Um. I guess I'll just finish with that notion of discernment. If you and your listeners decide to dive into Charles Williams' writings, which I hope you do. I mean, the novels are just fabulous. The poetry yeah, is beautiful, we start? but difficult. Um, I have a reader's guide for beginners on my website, The Audist Inkling. And I recommend starting with War in Heaven, because it's the one of his novels that has something most resembling a plot. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but as you as you read, like just keep your discernment awake mm-hmm. and aware because like i said he was an abuser of his the power mm-hmm. that he wielded over others and mm-hmm. just you know use all of your wisdom to sort through what he says and yeah mm-hmm. obviously yeah that's what, right that's what you do oh and uh, you do. yeah for sure and um you have your own podcast uh i don't know if it might be a while since you've posted yeah but, uh, it's not you wanna- it's not currently alive. It was called 1619 Mm -hmm. and 1776. And it was about taking Christians sort of on the left and on the right, if you want to call it that of the political divide and listening to them. So there was just one season. I'm pondering whether or not to revive it, but I did get to talk to a lot Mm -hmm. of pastors and priests who had very thoughtful things to say about the current American cultural moment. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's great. Uh, I listened to some of that and it's very uh, brave as well. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, so I applaud you on that. Oh, thank you. It was important for me as I was investigating those things. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Serena. Mm-hmm. You uh, have a wealth of knowledge and experience of looking into these things. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. You take care. Mm-hmm.